0: I I want to tell you a story today, and it's so detailed, I I want to read this story to you. It's about a four-year-old boy, and it's a near-death experience, and his name is Kennedy Butner. And Kennedy Butner's family's into baseball. Here's the story. On June the 15th, two thousand. The Butner family, Craig and Amy and their five small children, had just one thing on their minds, baseball. Little League baseball, to be exact, it was a championship game for an older brother, and the dad, who's the coach, and another coach promised that if they won the game, they would throw a swim party at the house. Well, they lost, but the coach saw how disappointed everyone was after the game, and they quickly decided to have a party anyway. Forty people were at this swim party. Most of them children crowded into the backyard of one of the team families that evening. The father, George, grilled hot dogs, hamburgers, while the rest of the parents supervised in the pool. Four-year-old Kennedy, in his baggy red swimsuit, sat on a towel nearby with other children. Amy, the mom, focused her attention on the five-week-old baby. So Kennedy is one of five. You got that? Okay. I took one bite, said Amy, and I felt like God tapped me on the shoulder and told me to go find Kennedy. Somehow I knew, but even before I turned around, that he was not on that towel anymore with his brother. She was not terribly alarmed at first. As a mother of five small kids, she learned long ago not to panic every time one of them wandered out of her sight. Still, Amy felt an unusual strong sense of purpose as she got up from that place and began to search for her son. Her first stop was the pool. Kennedy had taken swim lessons and was easing the water, but she couldn't find him around the pool. She looked, walked walked to the front yard, calling his name. Still no luck. Amy returned to the backyard and told husband Craig about the situation. He joined the search. Like Amy, he searched around the pool first for a glimpse of a little red swimsuit. He saw nothing. And then they're looking for about several minutes. Several minutes goes by, and Craig, the father, he hears this, "'Daddy, daddy, we found Kennedy.'" He's at the bottom of the pool. He was at the bottom of the pool. And fear seized Craig, the dad. As a doctor, he was well prepared to deal with emergency situations. But he also knew the horrible implications of the older son's Jacob's words. He expected to have to jump in the water to bring Kennedy to the surface. When he arrived, he was surprised to see his son lying on the concrete on the pool's edge. Jacob, the older son, and two other young men had already dived in and retrieved him from beneath nine feet of water in the deep end. Kennedy was out of the pool, but the sight of him added to Craig's growing alarm. His son had been underwater for more than 12 minutes. The boy's body was deep blue. His skin was bloated and his belly looked like nine months pregnant. He wasn't breathing and had no pain response. His pupils were dilated and unresponsive. Those are all the things I look for when I pronounce somebody dead at the hospital, said the Father Craig. Why I didn't want to just sit there and hold my child in my arms and cry right then, I don't know. Somehow, the Holy Spirit gave me the power to ignore what my eyes saw and believe that my son really wasn't gone. While others around him got on their knees and started praying, according to scriptures from the Bible, Craig, the physician, Craig, the dad, immediately began to administer CPR. After two and a half minutes, the four-year-old Kennedy still had not responded. At five minutes, he began taking erratic breaths on his own. Between five and ten minutes, the boy began to thrash around and exhibit behavior the doctors call abnormal posturing. It's a kind of muscle seizure that indicates severe brain damage and usually precedes death. At 11 minutes, the paramedics have arrived. Amy Butner, the mom, knew Kennedy, the four-year-old son, was gone the moment she saw him. He felt like cold rubber to her touch. But that didn't stop her from praying for a miracle. I fell on my knees and I cried out to God, Please don't take him. I'll have him any way you give him to me. I didn't stop praying for an instant. After a few minutes, hope revived. She saw Kennedy start to breathe and move. But when she observed him posturing, she knew what it meant. She had seen that before. Six months earlier, Amy had been at the bedside of her brother, Mark, who died of brain cancer. For many months, she had watched him slowly succumb to the disease, which left him horribly scarred and incapacitated. Just before he died at age 35, Mark was seized by posturing spasms that she later learned resulted from a loss of brain function when someone is near death. Several hours now go by. Craig and Amy, the parents, arrive at the intensive care unit of the Children's Hospital in Birmingham, Alabama. The doctors in charge did not sugarcoat the assessment he gave the Butners that night. Based on clinical measurements of Kennedy's condition... He estimated the boy had only a 15% chance of survival. And if he lived, there was only a 1% chance, 1% chance he'd ever recover to lead a normal life. Days go by. The next 48 hours were a blur. Meetings with doctors, nursing the youngest baby, Mark, fighting desperately to hang on to hope. On the third day, are you still with me on this story? I can't see you, but I think you're out there. On the third day, Amy was alone in the room with Kennedy. Her Bible opened on the bed. She asked God what she should read, and the answer came to her. Today is the 18th of June. Read Psalm 18. As she read, one verse left from the pages, if it were lit up in neon. He reached down from on high, says Psalm 18, and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. It was like a light switched on, she said. I just knew that God was going to draw Kennedy out of deep waters and God would rescue him. Days go by. The doctors took Kennedy off medication because he seemed to be improving somewhat, even though he was immobile. He still had a ventilation tube down his throat, but was responding with nods and shakes to questions. The attending neurologist was at a loss as to explain what he was seeing. Are you scared, said Craig to his son, Kennedy. He shook his head no. On Tuesdays of that next week, doctors reluctantly took him off the ventilators. He coughed and sputtered as the tube came out of his throat. His voice was hoarse, but he was in good spirits. Amy held him in his arms for the first time, and she finally asked him the question that haunted her for days, for five days. Baby, she said, what happened? And his answer was not what she expected. Four-year-old Kennedy said, Mama, I was in a whirlpool. Then an angel picked me up, and we flew. We flew through walls, and I flew through you, Mama. On Thursday, one week after arriving at the hospital with a 99% chance of being paralyzed and severely impaired cognitively for the rest of his life, Kennedy Butner went home. That afternoon, he played baseball gingerly with his brother and sister. Over the next few days, the Kennedys talked more about the things he experienced when he went into the water. I was very, very careful, said the mother, Amy, not to put words into his mouth. I just let him tell me about the things in his own way, in his own time. And Craig added, as he told us where he went and what he saw, he would look to the left and even the right and even point like he was remembering physical places where he'd been. The following conversation took place over several days. And here was the question. When the angel picked you up, where did you go? I went to heaven, Dad. What did you see? I saw Jesus. I saw lots of people, and I saw angels, and they were very happy. Did you see Uncle Mark? Yes. He looked just like Jesus. All his boo-boos were gone. He was happy. I saw a door with jewels on it. There was snow on the other side, and they opened it. How did you get back? Uncle Mark pushed me down, and an angel brought me back. You know, Mommy, Jesus is coming back. There are thousands upon thousands of those stories. I'm not sure what to make of all of them. But I do agree with four-year-old Kenny Butner when he said, Jesus is coming back. And that's really the whole essence of the Bible. When you look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament story is telling you that a Messiah is coming. All 39 books, a Messiah is coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us that a Messiah is here. And the rest of the Bible is telling us to get ready because Jesus Christ is coming again. And when you look at the Bible, and you begin to understand that the Bible is so clear about life after death, I just don't know why we don't read it more, why we don't understand it more, why we don't dig into it a little bit more. I mean, right now in the news, we're focused on Egypt. A year ago, it was Haiti. It was an oil spill. It was gold. And next year, who knows what it'll be. It always is changing. But the Word of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what I want to do today is two different things as we wrap up this series. The first thing I want to do is I want to show you that the four most important chapters are the first two and the last two. The first two and the last two. And you don't need to turn there yet. I'm going to have you, secondly, turn to Revelation 21. And we're going to look at Revelation 21 and Revelation 22 today as we summarize. But it is amazing to me how this book called a Bible, how this book called God's Word, how it all fits and flows together. The Bible starts and ends in the same place. And it starts and ends with a God who likes you and who loves you and who wants to do life with you. I just want to show you six different quick ways where the Bible, the first two chapters, and the last two chapters all fit in a dovetail together. Look at some of these, first of all. The Bible talks about a heaven and earth in Genesis, and the Bible talks about a new heaven and a new earth in the book of Revelation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis one one, The very first verse. The very first verse chapter, the very first verse of the entire Bible, talks about a new heaven, it talks about heaven and earth. Then the last, next to last chapter, talks about a new heaven and a new earth. So that's the new heaven. Look at the next phase. Number two, there are people. There are people in the beginning, and there are people in the end. There are people at the beginning, and there are people forever. The Lord God made a woman. She brought out of the man. And we see Revelation 21, verse 3, they will be his people. There's people in heaven. Look at a third component, a third characteristic. There's God. God's in the beginning of the first two chapters. God's at the end of the book, in the last two chapters. There's God there. There's always God. Look at the next phrase. Oh, that's the characteristic. Uh, there, the, here, here's, this is kind of cool. There's marriage um, in the first chapter, physical marriage. And in the second chapter, second phase, I'm sorry, second, um, the last two chapters of the Bible, talk about how the church is now the bride. And so there's a marriage in in chapter 1, there's a physical marriage in chapter 2, the church is the bride of Christ, all right? Look at the next characteristic. There's actually a place, a physical place, and the Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden. Now, Eden must have been really, really big, folks, because the garden fits inside of Eden, have you ever thought about that? This whole thing, Eden wasn't a garden. Eden was a place. And the garden fit inside of Eden. And then in Revelation 22, verses 1, 2, and 3, again, it talks about rivers and thrones and streets and trees. It's a physical place. Look at the next characteristic. This is really cool. Uh, this is about the tree of life. And in the very first two chapters of the Bible, there's a tree of life. In the last two chapters of the Bible, the tree of life is mentioned three different times. And in fact, we have seven different references in Revelation to the concept of the tree of life. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life. And look at Revelation 22. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Now, why the tree of life? Well, a lot of people think it keeps us from aging. A lot of people think, a lot of Bible teachers think it it, it sustains us. I don't exactly know, but we're going to eat from it, it's going to be really, really good. So I just want you to see that the first two chapters and the last two chapters of the Bible, they all fit together. It is not just a piece of good literature. The greatest miracle in the Bible is the Bible and how it was compiled and how it was connected. Now, if you would turn to Revelation 21 and 22, start with Revelation chapter 21, if you, if you have a, a Bible, and we're going to um, summarize today. Uh, I've not ever done this quite this way before, and if it doesn't work, second service may get it, you know, something different. I don't know, but we're going to try it this way today. And, and I want you to see in these two chapters a lot of what we've discussed over the last five weeks is actually contained inside of Revelation 21 and 22. This is one revelation. It's not revelations. It's one revelation. That's a pet peeve of mine, for those of you that are new and didn't know that. All right, look at chapter chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, and heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now, finally the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. That's the point. That's the whole point. I'm making everything new. I'm making a new heaven. I'm making a new earth. Um, all these life near-death experience stories where there were good stories and good, good, you know, good things took place, the people came back and they said, you know what? I saw my grandmother. Or I saw my brother. Or I saw my, my child. And, and it's like they were new. It's like new skin, like, like brand new and fresh. And, and, and everything is new. And the whole point about this is God is going to make everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy, and they are true. Look at verses 6 through 8. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost, from the spring of the water of life. So we got the tree of life, and we got the water of life. And so there's trees in heaven, and there's pure water. You don't have to buy bottled water. There's pure water in heaven, Okay. But him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes all this will inherit, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And the whole point is, God wants to be your God. The whole reason you and I were created is God wants to do life with us. The whole reason that he expanded from just the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and had fellowship with just the three, and it invites us into it, is God wants to spend eternity with you and with me. But the cowardly the unbelieving the vile the murderers the sexually immoral those who practice magic arts the idolaters and all liars their place will be the fiery lake of burning sulfur this is called the second death and we talked about hell last week and we talked about the history of hell last sunday if you didn't weren't here podcast it or get the cd But um, this is now the second death, and the second death is forever. And so today, if people who aren't Christians, who never accepted Christ, where do they go? They go basically to a very uncomfortable place called hell. But hell's not forever. The lake of fire is what's Forever. That is what it was forever. When Jesus Christ comes again, those who are Christians are today in paradise or in Abraham's bosom. They will go to the new heaven and new earth. Those who are not believers who are in hell, they will then go to the second death of the lake of fire. The Bible is just clear about this. It's just simple and very clear when you just kind of dig for this just a little bit. All right, let's look at the next couple of passages of Scripture. We're just going to kind of review today. One of these seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues came and said to me, Come and I will show you the bride. Now here he's going to describe the place where you and I live. He's going to get ready to describe eternity. He's getting ready to describe and to define where the church, which is the bride of Christ, where will we live? Okay. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And this is what takes place in that. Let's go to the next. Now let's look at verses eleven to about twenty-one. It's shown with the glory of God. This is now the city. This is now the new Jerusalem. This is now the new heaven and the new earth. And its brilliance was like that, a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. and There were three gates on the east and three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls, and the city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, as wide and as high as it was long. We talked about this. That's about 1,400 miles. And so this new Jerusalem, this new city is about 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. That's about as far as Canada to Mexico, the Appalachian Mountains, all the way over to California. It's been estimated that if even 20%, if even 20% of this size of a city is inhabitable, over 25 billion people could live in it and have lots of space and have their own two-acre plot or whatever they want to have up in heaven. It's really, really big. He measured its walls. And its walls were 144 cubits thick. That's 72 yards. The walls of this city are 72 yards thick by man's measurement what the angel was using. This is huge. And the wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold was pure as glass. And then it begins to describe this city. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. And just fly, go, go run through that next one, Deb. You'll see that all these different kinds of stones. I can't even pronounce most of them. The 12 gates with 12 pearls, and each gate was made of a single pearl. And the great street of the city was of pure gold, transparent gold. Look at verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lamb, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now, why do you need a temple? Because you need a temple where you go offer sacrifices. You need a temple where you've got to go make atonement for sin. You need a temple because you've got to get right with God. There isn't a temple in heaven because you're already there. You're already right with God. You're already connected with God. you already made peace with God. Those who are there have already on this earth made peace with their incredible heavenly father. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. Now notice it doesn't say there won't be a sun or a moon. It just says it doesn't need one. It doesn't need one. I think there will be suns and moons. For the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. In other words, the glory of God is so bright in that city that there's no night, there's no need for a sun, there's no need for a moon. It's an incredible Shekinah experience for those who get there. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory of God and of the nations will be brought into it. It's a great description. However, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now here's the point. You want your name in the Lamb's book of life. This is really, really important, and that's why we as believers are really convinced that we try to do everything we possibly can to help our friends and our family simply accept Jesus Christ as the Savior, because by accepting Christ as our Savior, the Lamb writes our name in a book, and there's coming a day when the books will be open. Let's go to Revelation 22. Are you still with me? A little bit. This is a review. Okay, Revelation 22. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. Then, he's still describing now this new Jerusalem. He's still describing the new city. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Now, I love this. There's trees of life. There's rivers of life. There's lots of water. How many of you like water? I mean, we live in Florida, for goodness sakes. Water's everywhere. I just love this. He shows me the river, the water of life, as clear as crystal. I was in West Palm yesterday on the Atlantic side visiting our 20-year-old son, just turned 20, and a bunch of young men from our church were there. And these guys are crazy. They were all surfing yesterday. The water's ice cold. But it was beautiful. It will pale in comparison to what this water will look like, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. So there's at least two trees, right? How many trees of life will there be in heaven? I don't know. Some Bible scholars think there will be dozens and dozens and dozens. But on each side of the river, there was a tree of life. So there's at least two trees of life. I guess we have to have a tree close enough for us to eat from so we don't get older. Okay, We don't need Botox in heaven. On each side of the river, so the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Someday, all the nations will be healed. We've been watching this now for the last two weeks, haven't we? It's still not over. My goodness. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. See, God's going to hang with us. God's not like out there, like in the next, you know, you know, suburb somewhere. God is right there in the city with us. The throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. Look at verse 4, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Verse 5, there will be no more night, there will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and forever. Now look at verses 6 through 9, the angel said to me, this is again John getting this revelation, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do it. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and prophets and of all who kept the words of the book. Worship God. Don't worship an angel. He's saying, worship God. Look at the next section of scripture. Then he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. In verse 11 then says basically it's too late. Once you're dead, you're dead. It's too late to make a decision for Christ. And so we're trying to do everything we can to help people make a decision today. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. Let him who is holy continue to be holy. That's just a little confusing. What he's saying is, is at that point, it's too late. At that point, it's too late. You've already cast your lot. You've already lived your life. Verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me. And I will give to everyone according to what he has done. And that's why I've I've said 150,000 different times, what you do on this earth really does matter. And what you do today really does count. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And what we do today is someday we're going to stand before what's called the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, to be judged for the things that we've done for God. Christians aren't judged for sin. That's at the great white throne judgment, which is in Revelation chapter 20. But Christians are standing before the beam of the judgment seat of Christ to be judged for the things we've done. Behold, I'm coming soon and my reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. Verse 13, I'm the alpha, the omega, the first, the last, the beginning and the end. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes that they have the right to the tree of life. There's the tree of life again. It may go through the gates into the city. These are Christians. These are people who have accepted Christ. These are people who have said, you know what? I can't get there on my own, but I'll get there because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Verse 16. I, Jesus, sent my angel to give you the testimony of the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. Verse 17. The spirit and the bride, there's about marriage again. Start with a real marriage. This is now marriage to the church. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let him him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Isn't that cool? Now, 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy. God will take away from him his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in the book. All right, 20 through 21. We're almost done. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Is that fast enough for you? All right. I had a lot to cover. Now, this is a 19-year-old girl. 19-year-old Marissa. Marissa. Marissa had grown up in church, played church, tried to be committed to church, but she went away to college. She had a lot of questions and doubts about God, and her question was, "Is God, are you real? God, are you real? All I really want to know is, God, is are you real? So after her graduation in 1982, Marissa enrolled in a prominent liberal university where she was immersed in an entirely different philosophical worldview than the one she had known. On campus, God seemed to have been banished from every classroom and dormitory. and Everywhere she turned, she was confronted by Darwinistic thinking and a deeply entrenched belief in science and reason as the only possible source of ultimate truth. Predictably, she began to question her faith in the face of so much uh, competing and contradictory evidence. Here's Marissa's struggle. As if that wasn't enough, nearly all her newfound friends seemed to be having a great time, drinking, doing drugs, having sex. Aside from trying alcohol like everyone else, marissa didn't follow along with the party crowd she and her boyfriend decided to avoid sex and even attended church together but being surrounded by so many contradictory influences that was enough to make her question her own view of right and wrong i've always tried to walk straight she said but the way these people were living suddenly looked like so much fun i asked god am i wrong to be tempted why do i feel like growing apart from you what's the right thing to do These were the questions that were swirling around Marissa's mind as she was out jogging that afternoon. The sticky asphalt radiating heat like hot griddle beneath her pounding feet. She was driven by a single question. It kept forming in her mind over and over again. She asked asked this several times. God, are you real? God, are you real? According to those who had witnessed what happened next, Marissa should not be alive today. She should have died and not come back. A huge early 1980s model Cadillac rounded the corner behind Marissa. A big-boned blonde woman in her 40s named Diane was at the wheel. It remains a mystery why she didn't see Marissa running on the road just a few feet ahead, but she runs over her. Wham! The impact tossed Marissa's body into the air like a rag doll. She came down hard on the hood of the car with the sickening of wump of, of, of buckling metal reflexively diana slammed on the brakes marissa rolled off the hood and fell limply to the pavement beside the car it finally came to a stop with the rear wheel pinning marissa's right leg to the ground the catastrophe unfolded in less than 2 seconds the on guard uh, lifeguard the on duty lifeguard across the street watched it all in horrifying slow motion from his umbrella covered perch overlooking the pool he was marissa's age a former high school classmate of hers And he ran faster than he'd ever run to the scene of the the accident. And he began to perform mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Blood poured from a cut on her head. She was unconscious. And then she said this. Later on, she said this. She said, I immediately left my body. One minute, I was running. The next minute, I felt like I was outside of everyday life. It was dark I don't mean creepy dark, just dark having your eyes closed. I couldn't see anything, but I knew God was very, very present. I, I felt really good. Marissa struggles like so many people who've had similar experiences to find the right words to describe what happened next. Language, she says, can only be crude, crudely approximate to the, the quality of the sensations she felt and the radically altered state of awareness she enjoyed outside of her body. To have some idea, she said, get in the deep end of a swimming pool. Go underwater and hear how quiet it is. Experience how peaceful you feel just floating there. Open your eyes and you can see all those other bodies swimming along beside you. You're suddenly aware of things you couldn't see a moment ago because they were hidden underwater. Your movements are effortless. Nothing hurts. You don't feel the gravity of the weight of your body. You have no wants, no needs, no fears. As soon as she left her body, Marissa was filled with a deep, indescribable feeling of peace and well being. She knew she had died and wondered why she'd been so afraid of something so wonderful. Marissa became aware of other beings around her on a spiritual plane. She doesn't know if they were angels or human spirits, but they were each but they each made a beautiful, radiant light. None were threatening or frightening in appearance. She remembers feeling astonished to realize that living people are surrounded by such a rich spiritual reality all the time and are completely oblivious to it. I felt perfectly safe and at home, and I had the sensation of moving upward through the darkness towards something. I never saw what. I didn't go through a bright light like some people describe, but I definitely felt like I was moving up, said Marissa. As I traveled upward, she said, I realized I wasn't ready to die, and I thought I'm only 19. I'd like to see how my life turns out, to see if I could succeed in life and have kids. And right then, I felt like I was a participant in the decision, like it was my choice. And then Marissa had this conversation with God. I said to God, now I know what death is about, and it's totally cool. Send me back, and let's see what kind of a difference I can make. I'm going to sing your praises and work for you. Put me to work. God told Marissa, I will send you back. This is her side of the story. I will send you back. And you will make a difference now that you know I am real. Then Marissa stopped moving upward and away from her earthly life. She was suddenly hovering in the air above the scene of the accident. She could see what was happening below with startling clarity. She saw her body on the ground covered in blood. Paramedics had arrived and were preparing to place her in an ambulance. Her mother and sister stood at the back of the ambulance sobbing and screaming. A large crowd of onlookers from the swimming pool stood in a wide circle of the street around her lifeless body. And Marissa suffered a concussion that day and a nasty gash on her head. She was bruised and scratched up, but no bones were broken, even though that leg wound up under the car's wheel. And here's what she said. She said this, I know with absolute certainty that God exists. We are accountable to him, and we would be crazy not to believe in him and have a relationship with him. And now I know that we can die at any given moment. You don't have until tomorrow. When it comes to getting your faith in order, right now is all you've got. And that's what this whole series about life after death is all about. For those of us that are Christians, it's about making our life count. It's about partnering with God. It's about doing the things that God's asked us to do. That's where church comes in and church comes along and kind of fans you into flames. And We have different classes and studies and environments to help you to grow in your relationship with Christ. But as a believer, just to the believers in this room, isn't that what we really want? Don't we really want to make a difference? We know that God has prepared a wonderful place for us. We know that today He's forgiven us of all of our sins. We know that today there's no shame, no guilt. But, but, but we want to do something in response to that because we're so grateful for what Jesus Christ has done for us. And for those in the room that, you know, you haven't kind of gotten around to this yet. This just hasn't been like a real priority yet. I would do whatever it took to find out if, if Jesus is the real deal. I'd spend the next six months reading books, reading scriptures, I'd spend the next six months of my life trying to figure out if there really is a God, and if God really does care, and if God really wants a relationship with you. And the answer to that is yes, 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 and yes to all the above. And next Sunday, don't miss next Sunday. If you've been in church now for 45 minutes or you've been in church for 45 years, don't miss next Sunday. Because next Sunday is going to address this to everybody, how we're all a part of this incredible um, um, part of what God has us in store for us. And so I want to close with another one of these incredible, powerful verses out of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. And just look at the screen if you would, and just look at the words on this. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days, this is a reference to God, the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and, the, and his wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out of before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. And there's coming a day when this prophecy of scripture from Daniel chapter 7 is going to be fulfilled. And we want all of you and every one of you to be able to have your name in the Lamb's book of life.